There we go. Okay, it would be good if you have uh, Mark chapter 10 open in front of you uh, from our Bible reading earlier. We want to turn our attention to that uh, section of God's Word together now. Let me pray for us as we do that. Dear Lord God, we thank you so much that you have brought us to a new year. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning. And we thank you for the mercy that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. You haven't left us in the dark, but you have spoken clearly to us of your promises and your plans for salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ the King. And Lord, we pray that as we uh, sit under your word, as we look at your word, as we read it and think about it together now, Lord, we pray that you would, you would speak to us. We pray that we would have open ears and open hearts and open minds so that as you speak, we would listen. And as we listen, we would believe. And as we believe, we would be changed to follow you forever. And we ask it in your name and for your glory alone. Amen. Well, uh, it is the new year. Happy New Year to you all. Uh, I'm not sure what your plans were this last week, but in our family, like I'm sure many of your families, around this time of year, we we take moment to sort of look back on the year that's just gone by and uh, and we share a little bit about things we remember from the year, things that we enjoyed, things that perhaps we found hard, things that we learnt. And then we turn our attention to the year that is coming, to 2020. And we start thinking about some of the things that we're excited about that are going to unfold in this new year. As we did that as a family earlier in this week, one of our family members happened to remind us all that 2020 is an Olympic year, right? And that's really exciting for us as a family. I don't know if you've realised that. The Olympics are a big deal in our family. We love watching the Olympics. And so we are already getting excited about July in Japan this year, the Olympics. And I think it's a good thing it's in Japan uh, because organising the Olympics is a massive deal and I don't think there's a country in the world that is as good at organising things and making it happen as the Japanese. Um, We've just seen that in the the way they've organised and run the Rugby World Cup and I'm sure the Olympic Committee is looking forward to their... Uh, production and their organisation of the Olympics. I, I think this time four years ago, as we were heading to you know, Rio in Brazil, the Olympic Committee was probably a little bit more stressed uh, than they are now. It's in good hands, it's in Japan, it's all okay. You need to make sure that everything's working well for something like the Olympics, an event of that size, to, to not only function, but even just to get off the ground. You've got to make sure you've got the right people in the right place doing the right jobs for something as big as that to work. Well, as Andrew said, you guys have been looking as a church at Mark's Gospel and at the start of Mark's story, Jesus comes onto the scene and he makes a massive announcement. Something huge was about to happen. The kingdom of God was near, said Jesus. It was time to repent. It was time to believe the good news. The kingdom of God was finally coming. And to the Jews that Jesus was speaking to, this would have been momentous news, um, welcome news, good news. And in fact, it still is today. Um, as the title of your sermon series is, this is news worth hearing. 
The kingdom of God was something that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, pictured and lived through the lives of the ancestors of the Jewish people, prophesied in the ancient scriptures, living as they were under oppressive Roman rule, it was something that they were all longing for. The kingdom of God is coming. But what sort of kingdom was it going to be? Who who was going to be in it? Who was going to be out of it? Who's going to be ruling it? How is it going to be established? How is something as big as that, how is that going to work? Those are the kind of questions I think that were on everybody's minds around this sort of time. And And it seems from our passage today that actually most of the people had the wrong impression about the kingdom that Jesus came to establish and indeed about the kingdom that he still rules over even today. The disciples, well, they're on board with the whole idea, right? Jesus is going to be in the kingdom and he's chosen them to help him do it. Great, they thought. But they had no real idea what that meant. And the discussion between two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, and Jesus in our passage today, I think clearly shows that. The kingdom was coming. And so they thought, surely the inauguration of this kingdom was going to take some administrative genius. Surely some organisational structures need to be put into place. This was going to take a team of dedicated people, the kind of people who could get the job done, not just dedicated and organised, but committed. And it was going to overthrow Rome. We're going to try and... This was going to be a battle going on here. What sort of team was going to need to be uh, gathered to achieve this feat, to bring in the kingdom of God? I'm pretty sure they're the kind of questions and the kind of way that the disciples were thinking when we find them here in Mark chapter 10. Jesus was going to bring in the kingdom of God and he had appointed an organisational committee of 12 people to try and help him get the job done. Or at least they thought that way. This is the way we work, isn't it? Uh, Whenever we have a project that we need to do, we want to put together an organisational committee that's going to help us do that. We certainly do that at churches all the time. I know you're in the middle of a building project over here. I'm sure you've got your building committee uh, that's working hard to get that done. This is the way things work. And so Jesus had his advisory committee in place, his 12 disciples. Or at least that's how they understood it. Which explains why Mark, I think, kind of sets the scene for us here the way he does in chapter 10, verse 32, at the start of our Bible reading. They're on their way up to Jerusalem. And Jesus is leading the way, and the disciples, were they're astonished, and others who follow, were they're afraid. Right, they're on their way to Jerusalem. The disciples had listened to Jesus enough to know that this was going to be a big deal. They knew something big was going to happen in Jerusalem. Jesus had spoken about his death. He'd spoken about the kingdom coming. He'd spoken about Jerusalem. It was all going to happen. It was all climaxing at this moment. It was all going to happen soon. And so we find them here, walking to Jerusalem with Jesus, ready to establish the kingdom. They're astonished. They're afraid. They're not quite sure what it all means. They're not quite sure what their role in all of it's going to be at the moment. What were they going to have to do to make sure that the kingdom of God arrived and was established? How are they supposed to help Jesus out? But the only problem with that way of thinking is that Jesus didn't need any help at all. And in fact, 
if they had been listening to him, perhaps more carefully, then they would have understood that they weren't going to do anything except watch and receive. If you've got your Bibles open there, just flick back one page to chapter 9, verse 1, and have a look at the way Jesus says it there. He says to his disciples, I tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Do you notice how he describes it there? They're simply going to see the kingdom come. They're not going to do anything about it. They're just going to watch. It's God who does the work. We are just spectators when it comes to bringing in the kingdom of God. And just after that, and earlier in chapter 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 14 and 15, Jesus tells the disciples that only someone who receives the kingdom of God like a little child will actually end up being a part of it. Receive it like little children, dependent children. Children who have nothing to offer. Children who just receive what they're given from loving parents. You see, if the disciples were really listening to Jesus, then they would have known that that they weren't actually involved in bringing the kingdom of God at all. With man, it's impossible. But with God, well, all things are possible with God. And Jesus was heading to Jerusalem to do it all himself. But the disciples just don't get it, do they? I mean, have a look at what James and John ask Jesus in verse 35 there. James and John, on their way to Jerusalem for this big moment, the sons of Zebedee come to him and say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I mean, it's quite an astonishing question, isn't it? Imagine what you'd say if your kids came up and asked you this, right? The siblings who got together, mum and dad, just sit down for a second. We've got a question we want to ask you. This is how it's going to work. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. I don't know how that's going to go down in your family if the kids came and approached you like that. I've got a pretty good idea how it's going to go down in my family. Not well, boys. Just give you the heads up, right? And yet these guys, James and John... Two guys who had come to realise in some sense that Jesus was the king. These two guys stroll up to Jesus and say, write us a blank cheque, would you? I mean, if you could just sign down the bottom here, that'd be great. We'll fill in the details later. Don't worry about it. We're in, Jesus. We're here for you. We're willing to play our part in this whole kingdom coming thing. But before we get to Jerusalem, before things start getting, you know, just a little bit hairy... We just want to make sure that we've got some guarantees in place. Thanks. We want to make sure this is all going to be worth it for us. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. And amazingly, and and, and I think I can only imagine with great patience, Jesus says to them, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me? to do for you. This is really the important question for understanding this whole section of Mark's Gospel. This is the big question that Jesus asks. What do you want me to do for you? Well, what they want is glory. (laughs) 
They want glory for themselves. They want to be able to bask in Jesus' glory when the time comes. These guys are glory hunters. That's what they're after. And the different reactions to their kind of explicit desire and manipulation and attempt for glory are, are quite interesting. Jesus' response is to say, you know what, you guys don't even, you don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> you don't even know what you're asking. And actually what you're asked for isn't mine to give anyway. But the rest of the disciples, well, they're not very happy with James and John, are they? In fact, they're quite angry with them. And I wonder why they're angry. And, and it's kind of, it, it might be tempting to kind of think perhaps We'll give them a fair hearing. Maybe they're, they're angry, frustrated with James and John because, you know, Jesus had told them they're going to Jerusalem. This is a big deal for him. He was going to die there. I mean, how could you be so in, insensitive? How could you be so unsympathetic? How could you be so focused on yourself, James and John? Tut, tut, that's terrible. I mean, it's possible that that might, might be why they're angry, but I suspect it's probably not. I suspect the reason why their other disciples are so angry at James and John is that James and John got in first, right? That's why they're angry. They're like, no, I wanted that glory. That seat was supposed to be my seat. I was going to Jerusalem to show Jesus how worthy I was of that. You just got in first. I can't believe it. You see, none of the disciples seem to really get what Jesus is on about at all. What do you want me to do for you? And then Mark tells us about a blind guy, Bartimaeus. He's blind, we're not sure whether that's been his case the whole of his life or perhaps because of some disease or some accident or something like that. We don't know, but he's blind. And as was common in those days, the only real hope he had for kind of any help was to be a beggar. We know that he's a pretty smart beggar though. Um, because he set himself up on a very important and very busy road. Now, Jerusalem is kind of up in the mountains, and it's about a day's walk from Jerusalem down the mountains to the valley to Jericho. And, uh, and, and you could travel north to Galilee and the area up there from Jerusalem. You could travel across the mountain range if you wanted to, but most Jews didn't like taking that route because, well, that was Samaritan territory, you see. And so if you wanted to travel to and from the north part of Galilee to Jerusalem, then most Jewish people would travel down from Jerusalem along the road to Jericho and then head up the Jordan Valley and make their way up to uh, the northern regions of Galilee. So Bartimaeus has set himself up very strategically here on a very busy road with lots of passers-by. Anyone travelling to and from Jerusalem from up north would walk past this beggar. And that probably means also that he gets a fair bit of of news and information and and gossip. I can imagine him sitting on the side of the road there and talking to the people who have just come back from Jerusalem. What's happening up there? Tell me the news. What are people talking about? I can't make it to Jerusalem, but you can tell me. And, And as he engages with people in conversation who have come down from the north and who are going back up from Jerusalem, he would have caught up on all the latest news. And if you, can, if you can catch up with someone, if you can engage them in conversation and stop them and have a conversation with them, well, then they're much more likely to help you out with a few coins, aren't they, you see? So I bet Bartimaeus had heard all about Jesus already from these passers-by. Perhaps he had heard about some of the miracles that Jesus had performed in Jerusalem. 
Maybe he'd heard about some of the, the uproar as Jesus had, had turned over the tables in the temple courts and as he, as he spoke and argued with and, and rebuked the religious leaders of the time. Perhaps he'd heard from some of those who came down from north, from Galilee, about the day where Jesus fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves of bread and, and a couple of fish. Maybe he'd even met someone who was there that day and ate that bread and fish. Perhaps. We're speculating a bit here. But it's not unlikely at all. And it seems certain that Bartimaeus knows something of who Jesus is, something of his reputation as a miracle worker, something of his reputation as the Messiah, as the King, as the one who would bring in the Kingdom of God. And so when he hears the crowd coming and he finds out that it's actually Jesus himself who's finally passing by his way, well, then he thinks to himself, this is my one opportunity. Right? This is why, this is my one chance and I'm not going to let it go. And Jesus, son of David, he cries out, have mercy on me. And the more people tell him to, to keep quiet, the, the louder he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And, and when he finds out that Jesus has actually stopped in his tracks, and that Jesus is waiting for him to come and talk to him. Well, he, he just leaves everything, doesn't he? He just throws off his clothes. He leaves his, he leaves his basket there with, a, with the coins in it that he's received that day. He just forget about it. None of that's important anymore. And he kind of stumbles his way over to Jesus where he knows he is. He's blind. He's bumping into people. It's awkward. Someone maybe had to help him. But he finally gets to Jesus. And have a look at what Jesus says to him. In verse 51, when he gets there, it's astonishing, really, actually. Jesus says, What do you want me to do for you? It's the exact same question that Jesus asked James and John. And there's no doubt here that Mark wants us to do a little compare and contrast between these two events. He wants us to learn something from these two events. The blind man. Bartimaeus addresses Jesus like this. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. James and John, rabbi, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. Jesus' response to both of them is exactly the same. What do you want me to do for you? But look at the differences in their replies. James and John, they want glory. Bartimaeus, he just wants to be able to see. (laughs) And Jesus heals his eyes, simply, with a word. But the reality is that this blind guy could already see a whole lot more than the disciples could. He saw who Jesus really was and what he really needed Jesus was the son of David, the king, and what he needed from him was mercy. Bartimaeus saw a whole lot more light that day than just the sun's rays shining in to his new eyes. He saw the light of the glory of Jesus shining in his heart. You see, the thing is, when you read this story, It's so clear that Mark actually has arranged it this way. He wants to help us realise that we're we're kind of actually with Bartimaeus here. We're blind. 
that the Apostle Paul uh, was told by Jesus later that his task was to preach to the Gentiles so as to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. <laughs> and later Paul will write to the Christians in Corinth and he'll say that God who, who said, let there be light, referring to the creation of the world, has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Friends, you see, God is in the business of opening the eyes of the blind. Not just Bartimaeus' physical eyes, but the disciples' blind eyes and our blind eyes so that we can see Jesus for who he really is, the son of David, the king. He wants us to come and meet and see the king, just like Bartimaeus did that day. So here's a question we've got to ask. It's the question of our passage. It's the question Jesus is asking all of us today. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want Jesus to do for you? Is it glory you want? Security, health, wealth, prosperity? Because if that's the case, then you actually find yourself on the side of the disciples, don't you? And just like the disciples, we've still probably got a lot to learn about the kingdom of God. We'll come to that in a second. Because Jesus has got a lot of lessons for the disciples in this passage. Or is it mercy? Son of David, have mercy on me. Open my blind eyes so that I can see you for who you truly are. Let me meet you, the king, and then follow you with all my life. Because you see, it's interesting as you compare and contrast these two stories in Mark's gospel, you realise actually that Jesus doesn't need to teach Bartimaeus anything. (laughs) Bartimaeus understood and knew exactly what he needed to do. He leaves everything he has. He recognises Jesus for who he is. He begs for mercy. And when he receives it, he willingly follows Jesus on the road. The road to Jerusalem, that is. The road to Jesus' death. You see, Bartimaeus seems to have got it all worked out. Jesus doesn't teach him anything in this passage. But the disciples, on the other hand, well, as I said, they've still got a lot to learn about the kingdom of God. And on three different occasions... Jesus takes the disciples aside and tries to teach them something that they haven't quite understood about the kingdom. And so if you're finding yourself thinking today that your answer to Jesus' question actually, in all honesty, sounds a little bit more like the disciples' answer than it sounds like Bartimaeus' answer, well then perhaps we should have a look at some of the things that Jesus wanted to teach his disciples in this story so that we can learn them too. So have a quick look back at verse 33. They're on their way to Jerusalem. The disciples are astonished and afraid and Jesus takes them aside. And he teaches them, he says, you know what, this is not about you, it's about me. All this is going to happen to me. We're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, I will be betrayed. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, they're going to condemn me to death. They're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. They're going to mock and spit and flog and kill. Three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. This is now the third time that Jesus has given 
the disciples explicit details about his death. And each time he gives them more and more information. Yes, this is scary. Yes, astonishment, fear, anticipation. They're all the right emotions, but it's me though. It's my life on the line here, not yours. There is tension in this scene. It's edge of your seat, heart pounding kind of stuff as Jesus heads towards Jerusalem for the culmination of his ministry to bring in and inaugurate this kingdom. And following Jesus meant heart pounding excitement for the disciples. And you know what? I don't think it's all that different for us today. The only difference is that for the disciples, it was what was going to happen to Jesus. And for us, it's what has happened to Jesus. But there's still that same mix of emotions, that sense of awe and astonishment, still that heart-pounding, edge-of-your-seat kind of ride when you live with Jesus as your king. It's life lived on the edge. It's life lived to the max. It's life in the kingdom of God. And it's scary and exciting all at the same time. And it's dangerous. That's the second thing Jesus wants to teach these disciples. It's going to be dangerous for him And for his followers, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Can you be baptised with the baptism I'm going to go through, Jesus says to James and John as he speaks about his death and all that he was about to experience? Well, they say, yeah, sure. They don't have any real idea what they're talking about. And Jesus says, yeah, you will. You will. James will be killed by King Herod, it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 12. It's the, the only death of the disciple that is recorded in the, in the Bible for us, well, apart from Judas, of course. John lived quite a long life, but ended up his, spending his last days on Exile Island for the sake of the gospel. It's dangerous. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus said. Lose your life so as to save it. Which brings us to the third thing that Jesus teaches his disciples about the kingdom and that he teaches us and that we need to learn about the kingdom too if the answer to our Jesus' question is more like the disciples. And that is that it's an upside-down kind of kingdom. The way things work in our world is that those who are on the top boss around those who are underneath them. Anybody who's ever worked any kind of job knows that that's exactly the way it works, right? Andrew said earlier that I worked in the financial markets and when I started working on the trading floor, it was my job as the new guy on the trading floor to organise and buy breakfast for every single person in my section of the trading floor, about 30 different people. And every day I had to take their breakfast orders and go down and get breakfast and collect it and bring it back for them. Every single day as the new guy on the floor. I did that every day for over six months until another guy joined the team. I could pass it on to him, right? It's the way it works. Those on the bottom do the scummy jobs until they can find somebody else underneath them. That's the way our world works. Rulers lord it over those who are beneath them. But Jesus says, no way. Not in the kingdom of God. You want to be great? No worries. Jesus does not say to not look for greatness. Did you notice that? He doesn't say that. He just redefines what greatness is. He redefines what it looks like. You want to be great? Well, the way it works in the kingdom of God is that you serve. 
and he holds himself up as an example. Taking the title of the Son of Man, the great figure from Daniel's prophecy, but the one who in Daniel 7 is given all power and all authority, the, the one who rules over all peoples and all nations, that one, the Son of Man, has come to the earth that he rules over not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for those whom he rules. You want to be part of the kingdom of God, you want to have eternal life, then listen to Jesus. With man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. You see, the disciples thought they were part of Jesus' organisation committee, the guys who were going to get everything done when it came to bringing in the kingdom of God. But Jesus didn't need them. They were wrong. There was only one person who was going to do anything about this and it was God working through his servant, the Son of Man, working through Jesus, the King, as he gave his life as a ransom for you and I. You want to be a part of the kingdom of God? Then you've got to understand that there's nothing that you can do. Nothing that you can contribute. Nothing that God owes you. You want to be part of the kingdom of God, then come meet the king. And just like Bartimaeus, sit and beg, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those are the people who are part of the kingdom of God. The ones who accept it like a dependent child. The ones who put their faith, not in their own efforts, but in the son of man who gave his life to pay their ransom. And I want you to be part of the kingdom of God. I long for that. I want you to meet the king and ask him for his mercy. And if you are a part of the kingdom of God already, then let's live like it. (laughs) Let your life be a little bit exciting. Take a chance on Jesus. Because that's what life is like in the kingdom of God. That's what it's supposed to be living with Jesus as your king. It means everything. And I want you to be the greatest in the kingdom. (laughs) I mean, wouldn't it be great to have this church full of greatness? Kingdom people looking for someone to serve. Kingdom people looking for ways to put other people first. Kingdom people looking to be great in God's eyes. Kingdom people wanting to serve their king. What do you want me to do for you? Let me pray. Dear God, we thank you that you are in the business of opening the eyes of the blind. And we pray that you would open our eyes so that we can see you clearly. And just like Bartimaeus, let us follow you with all our lives once we do. Amen.